0: from chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 in Ezra. Not all of it, don't worry. Um, And yeah, this is God's um, gift to us. It's his word for us today. And so um, we will listen and remember that this is his truth. It's all one story that points to Jesus. Um, So let's hear now from, uh, let the Lord speak to us this morning from the book of Ezra. Ezra 7, 1 to 6 says, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zariaha, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was, his God was on him. Ezra 7, 9-10 says, For on the, the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the hand, the good hand of his God was on him for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra 8, 21 23 says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king, the hand of our God is good for all who seek seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Ezra 9, 3-7 says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gather round me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been great in guilt. And for our iniquity, iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. Ezra 102 5 says, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and all those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as he had said. So they took the oath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I just pray for Andrew right now that you would um, fill him with your spirit, that you would speak through him, um, and that you would, um, yeah, just speak to each one of us today um, through your word. I ask all these things in your name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Uh, Good to see you all this morning. Uh, if you are a visiting with us, or if you're just new to us, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the pastor here. I'd love to get to know you as well, and we'll be uh, making plans to do. I'm just I'm, I'm stalling because I'm looking for my notes here. Um, we'll be making plans to do more lunches and stuff together, so we can get to know each other more. Um, we, we're continuing a series in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's and if you are new to the village, that's what we do. We just take books to the Bible and just work our way through them. And that way, it just lets the Holy Spirit set the agenda. He's going to speak to us through His Word. And, and, and so that's what we do. And, and we've been working our way through Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and last week, we came to the end of the book of Ezra. Remember, these are one book in the Hebrew Bible, all one book. Um, in the English version it's been split into two but it's all one story the story of the exiles coming the Israelite exiles coming out of Babylon back to uh, the land that God had given them and, and we got to the end of, of the, 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 the book of Ezra last week, which is really the end of the second part of the story. There's three parts in the story. The first part is the, the, the coming back and the rebuilding the temple. We've done that. Then the, the second part is the coming back and the rebuilding the people. So that's what Ezra has been doing. He is the one who who came back and, and started bringing the, the law of God back and, and practicing the sacrifices and all that kind of thing. And we're really at the end of that now. And before we move on to the third and final phase, the book of Nehemiah, I just want to pause today before uh, we go into Nehemiah and look back and see what we can learn from the life of Ezra, um, and specifically what we can learn about Jesus. Um, And that's what I'm going to do. That's why we read chapter 7, 8, and 9 this morning, and well done to uh, uh, Lauren for doing those names again. (laughs) Um, And we're going to pause here for a second, and we're just going to stop and see Jesus, right? That's all we want to do this morning. So let me pray for us again, and then uh, we'll, we'll look at the life of Ezra. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your mighty word. Thank you that's unchanging, that's good, that's alive and active. Thank you for the presence of your Spirit with us, alive in us. Uh, may we hear your words to us this morning. May we be changed. May we be convicted of who you are and our need for you. Uh, may Jesus be glorified in all we do. Amen. Uh, Christmas seems like a distant memory, doesn't it? Uh, I threw out the last of the empty chocolate boxes uh, this week. Um, So that's the last remnant of Christmas in our house. Uh, I was really lucky this Christmas. I got some really nice Christmas presents, and I actually got one gift that's the best kind of gift. And that's the kind of gift that you, you really want, but you haven't asked for, right? That's the best kind of gift, isn't it? You want it, but you haven't asked for it. And I'm very rock and roll. It was a pair of slippers and they're the best slippers ever, and I'd be wearing them this morning if it wasn't socially unacceptable. Um, Maybe I could get away with preaching slippers. I don't know, Um, but imagine for a second if you got every present you've ever wanted. Um, Even as I say that, what is it? What's the thing that you've always wanted? Um, Imagine if every year Christmas rolled around, and you got every present you ever hoped for, no matter how big or expensive or extravagant it was, right? Now, imagine that happened every Christmas, but Christmas wasn't about Jesus. So imagine if you got everything you ever wanted, but that's all Christmas was. It was just about getting what you want. There was no no message of Jesus being born as a human being, living a perfect life, dying on the cross to pay for our sins, being raised from the dead. None of that. If we got everything we ever wanted but didn't get Jesus, would it be worth it? Uh, There's a theologian called Jim Hamilton He's literally wrote the book on Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, he said this. He said, If God gave us everything we wanted, but we didn't have Jesus, we would live miserable lives and then go to hell. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? You see you can have everything in the world that you want or desire or hope for. Wealth, health, prosperity tend to be the big 3. Maybe you want to be popular, maybe you want to have more hair, maybe you want to be thinner, maybe you want to be better looking. Maybe maybe you never want to work another day in your life. Maybe you have a, want to have a family that's not as annoying or or maybe you just want to have a better mental health. When you can have all these things, but if you didn't have Jesus, would it be worth it? You see, this is sometimes what we do when we read the Bible. We read the Bible, and we want to see what, what can we get out of it. What's, what, what are we supposed to do here? Just tell me what to do, Jesus, and I'll do it, and then we'll be all good. Sometimes we can read the Bible and, and miss Jesus, and you might think, well, how can we read the Bible and miss Jesus? Well, the answer to that is pretty easily, actually, especially when we read the Old Testament. And if we, we, read, the old, if we read the Bible and miss Jesus, then we have missed the point entirely. This is why I wanted to pause this week and just recap on this story a wee bit and think, where, where is Jesus in all of this? Because my tendency, because I'm, I'm a doer, right? My tendency is to rush through and go, well, what's the action point? Oh, well, great story, Ezra, blah, 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 leading the captives back to Israel. Uh, good, good for him. Like, now tell me what I need to do. This week, I was uh, just, somebody read it to me, actually, uh, the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. So if you don't know this story, the Israelites were, were slaves in Egypt um, for a long, long time. And then Moses is raised up by God, and he leads them out of Egypt. And they're, and they're fleeing out of Egypt, and the, the Egyptian army are coming behind them, and they're in front of the Red Sea, and there's no way across. They're trapped, and all the people start to panic, and they start uh, crying out to God, saying, Why did you bring us out here to kill us in the desert? And, and, and listen, what God, listen to what God says. Uh, This is in Exodus 14, 13 to 14, and this really hit me this week. God gives this message, and Moses says to the people, Fear not, that's the first part, stand firm, that's the second part, and see. See the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." I struggle to be silent. I struggle to stand still. I struggle to, to stand firm. You see, God's response to their danger was to say, right, okay, just be quiet. Don't move, and just see what I am going to do for you. Just be still. Calm down. Look at my salvation for you. Uh, my, dad was, my dad wasn't like me at all. And, I mean, he looked like me, but that was it. He, he was a quiet man, um, and his favorite, his favorite verse was Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. And that's just a good lesson for all of us, isn't it? So often we, we try to work at our own salvation. We try to figure out our own way out of the problems that are in our lives. But, but often God just says, look, just be calm and be still and let me work for you. See the salvation that I am working for you. And this is what I want us to do this morning with Ezra. I don't really want us to, to move on without pausing to consider... Jesus and the salvation that Jesus is working for us. And here's what I want us to see this morning, really simply, the life of Ezra points us to Jesus. That's it. It's that simple. The life of Ezra points us to Jesus. So for a lot of our sermons so far in this series, it ha- there has been an action point, things that, w- that we've recognized that we want to do and go and, and achieve and, and, and be like, and, and, and those are good things to do. So, so in Ezra chapter 7, go and be like Ezra and set your heart to study and know and do the Word of God. But today we're just going to pause and we're going to look and we're going to listen and we're going to see how Ezra points to Jesus. Because uh, when we read the Old Testament, it's easy to do one of two things, isn't it? The first thing we try to do is we, we read of these characters and we try to weigh up are they good or are they bad? That tends to be the first thing that we do. Are they good? Were they right to do that? Were they wrong to do this? Was, was Ezra right to tell all these men to, to divorce all these women? Was he right to do that, or was he wrong? And then we try to figure out. And, and then, then the second thing we do is, if they were right, we say, well, that's a good example. We should do that. We will, we will be like Ezra, and we'll study the Word of God, and blah, 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 blah. And if they're bad, maybe the divorce thing isn't such a good thing, Well, then let's not do that. Let's see that as a a bad example. But if we only read the Old Testament in this way, we're missing the whole picture, because it it would just be like Christmas without Jesus, wouldn't it? The question we have to ask is, is, why are we given the Old Testament in the first place? Why are we spending months reading these Old Testament books? Why did God just not start with the New Testament, start with Jesus, get straight to the good bit? And the answer is that all of it points to Jesus, doesn't it? That's the whole point. If you, if you go to an art gallery, and, and imagine you go to an art gallery, and you, and you walk around, you see all the paintings and all the works of art and stuff. Uh, sometimes me and Haley go away, that's what we do, because we like to pretend that we're all fancy and pretentious, but we're not really. And we're kind of going, that doesn't make any sense to me, that's just a shape or something. Um, but you're, that's what you're doing, you're trying to work out, well, what is, what is the artist trying to say with this? What 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 does that mean? What's the meaning behind this? But imagine if you went in an art gallery, and as soon as you go in the door, there's a big banner, and it just says, every piece of art in this room, or in this gallery, is about Jesus. And then you know as you look at every piece, that's about Jesus. Wow, look at what that's saying about Jesus. This is what it's like when we read the Bible. We know that every part is about Jesus. Jesus is the point and the purpose. All we have to do is find Jesus in every page that we read in the Bible. So this morning, how does Ezra point us to Jesus? How does his life point us to Jesus? There are lots of little details in the life of Ezra and the work of Ezra that point us to Jesus, but I just want to highlight three for us this morning. And so that we can be like Moses and the people of Israel on the edge of the Red Sea and just see the salvation that the Lord is working for us today. The first one is this, Ezra is a priest and mediator. Uh, that list of names at the start of Ezra chapter 7. I think it's on the screen. Let me, let me, you can see it. I'm not going to read that. But I'm going to read verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Babylon, Ezra, who is the son of all these people, here's his descendants, all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest. The first five verses in, in chapter 7 are, are, are more than just a list of names. The book of Ezra is full of lists of names, and we often just want to skip over them, don't we? We think, oh, that's kind of boring, or it's not very relevant. But these lists of names in the Bible are called genealogies, and and they're given to us to show their ancestry, somebody's ancestry. They're given to us uh, to show, to tell us who that person is. These, These lists of names are about identity. In fact, the New Testament starts with a list of names, doesn't it? Matthew's gospel starts with a list of names all the way down to Jesus. All of this is to show us who this Jesus person is. We can see his ancestors all the way back and know exactly who he is. And so when we come to the start of Ezra chapter 7 and, and, and Ezra enters the story and we read this list of names, we know exactly who this Ezra is. Chapter 7 verse 6 says, This Ezra. Look at who he is. This Ezra. And the first thing we see is that this genealogy proves that Ezra is a priest. He's from the tribe of Levi. He's descendant from Aaron, the brother of Moses, the very first priest of Israel. Now, that's actually a really important point because priests in Israel had a very specific role. Uh, they, they had a, a function that they played within the community of God's people, and they were the go-betweens, the mediators between God and the people. That was their job. So, they, so the first thing they did was well, they, they brought the law they brought the law of God, and they read it to the people, and they reminded the people of who they were, who they are in God. And they said, remember when God brought us across the Red Sea? This is who you are. And then they made sacrifices for the people on behalf of the people that atoned for their sin and made them right with God. And in the same way, Ezra is a priest and mediator between God and the people, the go-between. Now, remember that the people at this time were in exile. They were separated from God. And it seemed hopeless. It seemed like they had no way back. They needed somebody to bring them back to God. And so in verse 6 of chapter 7, and then repeatedly throughout the whole chapter, it says that the hand of his God is on him. God's hand was on him, on Ezra. That just means that God was leading his life and directing his life, and God was making it all happen for him. But then as we move through chapter 7 and 8, this changes. In chapter 8, we see that, that Ezra says that the hand of God was on us. It said the hand of God was on me, was on him, and then it goes was on us. There's a move from just Ezra to include all the people. It goes from him to us. And what do we see in this? We see that the favor of God has come to the people through the priest of God. Ezra has been seeking God on behalf of the people. A key verse in all this is, is chapter 8, verse 22 that we read, and or that I'm going to read, it's on the screen. It says this, They've come and they're on their way back to Jerusalem and it's a big long journey and they've camped at this place and they decided he's decided not to ask the kings for help. He's gonna ask the king of kings for help. They're fasting, they're praying, they're seeking God because they need help. And he says I was ashamed to ask the king for of soldiers. Uh, and the soldiers horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of God is for good on all who seek him. His wrath as against all of them. Sure, do you What's the saying? The sin that all those who seek God will have his hand on If you're seeking God. that was smooth. If you're seeking God, then if you seek God, then his hand will be on you. In the same way it was for Ezra. Ezra was seeking God and his hand was on him. God was was leading his life and blessing his life. They were receiving blessing and flourishing. But according to verse 22, if you reject God, if you don't seek him, then you experience the power of his wrath. And so we're faced with a choice, aren't we? Just like the the Israelites in, in exile. We seek God or we don't seek God. You see, we are like the Israelites in the story. Don't think for a second that you're in any way like Ezra in this story. You're the Israelites. We're separated from God and with seemingly no hope of ever coming back. That's a four-month journey all the way back from Babylon to to Israel. How are we ever going to do this? And, And you haven't been like Ezra. You haven't been seeking God. You haven't been studying the law the way Ezra had been. You've been happily just getting on in Babylon. You've been happy thinking, oh, I'm a Babylonian. I'm not actually an Israelite. So how can we seek God? They needed God to raise up somebody to bring them back, and Ezra was that person. Now, Jesus is the new and better Ezra. You see, Jesus says about Himself in John 14, He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is that mediator. Jesus is the one who brings us back to God. Jesus is the one that God has raised up to bring us back from our exile so that we can be reconciled to him. We need we need Jesus to intervene in our lives to bring us to God and this is what Jesus has done for us. You see without Ezra, all those people would have stayed stuck in Babylon, totally blissfully unaware that they even needed to be saved. And without Jesus it would have been the same for us. But Jesus has become our priest and mediator. How has He done this for us? Well, you see, the job of the priest, like I mentioned, was to make sacrifices for the people. In this symbolic act, an innocent animal would be killed and, and, and it would die as a way of taking on the consequences of the sin. This is called atonement. It's the wrongs being made right. It's the, it's the sin being paid for. We all know that, that wrong has to be paid for, Right? I've used this example before, I think, but if I smash into somebody's car and it's my fault, then I have to pay for that. That wrong has to be made right. Somebody has to pay for that. This is what has happened in these sacrifices. And in the case of Ezra, all he could do was teach the people how to live righteously and make sacrifices. But inevitably, no matter how much he would teach the law, no matter how many times he made sacrifices, the people would just sin again. They would just keep walking away from God again and again and again. But our priest is different. See, we don't need a repeated sacrifice. Because Jesus, our great high priest, became not just the priest, but the sacrifice. He's the priest that sacrifices himself. And because of his sinless perfect nature, his perfect sacrifice was once and for all. Hebrews 10 10 says that that we have been sanctified. That just means that we've been made clean. We've been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. So you've had all these sacrifices, but Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's Him, for the unrighteous, that's us. Why? That He might bring us to God. You see how He's like Ezra but you see how he is a better mediator than Ezra. He is both priest and sacrifice. And here's the most amazing part of this. Stuart, can you please put verse 22 on the screen again there? Here's the most amazing part of this. It says that the hand of God is on all those who seek him, and the wrath of God is on all those who forsake him, right? here's the most amazing thing. Jesus was the one who who was always seeking God. He was the one who always sought the will of the Father, and we were the ones who were rejecting Him. And so according to Ezra chapter 8 verse 22, Jesus should receive the hand of God's blessing on Him, and we should receive the wrath of God. But what has happened is that, that Jesus, in this most outstanding and incredible act of perfect, unconditional love, took our place paid the penalty of our rejecting God, and he got the wrath so that we could get the hand of God on us. The only reason you have the favor of God on your life is because Jesus took the wrath that you should have had instead. This is a literal mic drop. Uh, this is what we call, this is what's called the great exchange, the great exchange of the gospel. Ezra couldn't do this. Ezra was a good example, yes, and, uh, but he, but he he was just a foreshadowing of, of a better mediator, a better priest, a better, a better sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. And this means that instead of us coming back to some temporary uh, promised land, some temporary physical promised land, that, that we're led by our priest and mediator to the perfect and eternal promised land of the new creation and the presence of God forever. Ezra couldn't do this. No one could. Only the Lord Jesus could and did do this. I was thinking about this week, and I was just thinking about how, how much do we walk around in our guilt and our failure? How much do we walk around carrying, trying to pay for the price of our own sin? Church, stop carrying your failures. The biggest lie that the devil tells the church is that, that you're not a very good Christian. And the reason it's such a destructive lie is that it's a half-truth, because of course you're not a very good Christian. That's the point. The only reason you're a Christian at all is because you know you're not good, and you're just relying on the grace of Jesus, right? Right? This is the point of, of the gospel. You're not good, but Jesus is. So stop carrying around the weight of your sin. Stop walking around in guilt. Stop letting it trap you. Because all that has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. And so when you feel this way, when you're crippled by guilt and you feel like a failure, I'm not a very good Christian. I, I missed that opportunity or I, I sinned in this way or I didn't do this. Remember this. Our new and better Ezra, the Lord Jesus, our priest and sacrificed, has paid for all of that. So stop trying to pay for your sin over and over again. Be free, because it was for freedom that Jesus took God's wrath from us. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Here's these words again, stand firm Therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. I have to admit that I carry a yoke of slavery all the time, carrying around the weight of my own I have failures. I'm not good enough. I've sinned in this way, Lord. Oh, help me. I'm not. Th- and Jesus said all the while, saying, "Do you not see? Do you not see the scars on my hands? That wasn't for nothing. I've paid for that sin." He's our perfect priest and our perfect sacrifice. That's the first point. And secondly, then. We see Jesus and Ezra in this way. Ezra identifies with the sin of his people. He identifies with the sin of his people. Now, Ezra, as the, the priest and mediator of the people, he's, he's reading the law, and he's, at this point, they're trying to remember who they are. They're trying to reclaim their identity, and the way they do that is by reading the law, reading what we know as the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the Torah, remembering all the history of how God had saved them and made them who they are and, and how he wants them to live. And when he, Ezra's doing this and, and then he sees what the people have been up to, he realizes they actually haven't been living up to this law. They haven't been living in the way God has, has laid out for them, and he's deeply grieved. Chapter 9, verse 3 tells us that as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. He entered into mourning, doesn't he? And then the verses after this go into great detail. He prays us long prayer. He's repenting and he's saying, Lord, we've sinned in this way. And he mourns over the sin. And last week, John did a great job, I thought, of, of just showing us this and reminding us of our, own, of our need to take our own sin seriously. So yes, we're free from it. We take it seriously. And we do that so that we can receive the fullness of God's grace. But I also want to show how that is a picture of Jesus. You see, Luke 19 tells us that when Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to to be tried and then die on the cross, he, He gets to Jerusalem and He sees the people. Supposedly, God's chosen people. And He sees how they've rejected God. He sees how they're sinning against God and they're excluding people from coming to the temple. They've turned the temple into a place of business. And He weeps. He weeps over the city. You see, just like Ezra, Jesus is grieved by the sin of his people. Just like Ezra, Jesus has moved into mourning uh, how the people have rejected God because he knows that ultimately this leads to destruction when he has created them, not for destruction, but for, for blessing and flourishing and life. And then both Ezra and Jesus does, it goes an extra step. Both of them, their grief moves just beyond mourning, but to actually identifying with the sin of the people. Maybe you picked up on this last week. You see, the sin in Ezra chapter 9 is not a sin that Ezra has done himself, but he still takes it on himself. Remember what we read in chapter in chapter 9, verse 6. He said, Oh my God, I am ashamed to blush, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. You see, this wasn't his sin, but he prays our guilt, our iniquities. What's Ezra doing? He's identifying with the sin of the people. Now, he didn't have to do this. He could have mourned and said, oh, Lord, you know, the people are guilty and sinful. Lord, it's so bad and sad how they've, they've turned away from you, and, and help me lead them, Lord. Help me lead these sinful people. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He takes the people's sin on himself, And even, uh, but but even as good as his intentions are, he can only go so far. All he could do was was identify with the people's sin and say, Lord, we've sinned and and help us to be holy. Please forgive us. But not so with Jesus, because Jesus is better than Ezra. You see, Jesus identifies with our sin, yes, but then he takes it on himself. He's the only one who could make it right. You know, Jesus would have been perfectly within his rights to say, yes, Father, our people are sinful. The world is wicked. Look at, the, look at all the ways they've rejected you. But I am perfectly holy. But he didn't do that. He didn't hold on to his rights. He chose to take on our sin. Out of his great love, he chose to become flesh and blood to identify fully with us, even to the point of dying as one of us. Please make no mistake about this. Jesus chose to identify with your sinfulness. Why? Why? Because He loves you. Because He loves you. He wanted us to be brought back to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake God made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. Okay, what that means is that Jesus became sin for us. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus became sinful. Not at all. Jesus is and was and always will be without sin. He never rejected God or turned away from Him in any way. But what it does mean is that He took on our sin, right? He took on our sin. All of our guilt and shame and brokenness and rejection of God became His. He took it off us. All that stuff we were carrying, He lifted it from us so that, why? We could become the righteousness of God. So, We get all His goodness and purity and faithfulness and holiness so that we can be in the presence of God forever. In identifying with us in our sin, He took all of the muck and filth and failure and guilt that was ours and He put that on Himself and then He clothed us in His righteousness, His rightness with God. Ezra could never do this. We can't do it for ourselves. Only Jesus can do this. So He gets the results of our sin, God's wrath, and we get, forgiveness and life. He gets guilt and shame. We get freedom and hope. He gets death. We get eternal life. He gets the punishment of a cross, and we get the gift of of the Holy Spirit. All because He loves us and has chosen to identify with us in our sin and pour out His grace on us. Jesus is just like Ezra in some ways. He identifies with us in our sin, but He's the better Ezra because He takes on Himself And gives us his righteousness. That's the second way. The the third and final way that we see Jesus in the life of Ezra then is this Ezra is committed to his people's holiness. We don't really talk about holiness much, do we? We don't talk about it enough. We talk about a holy God, but we don't really talk about uh, our own holiness. In chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra, I think are some of the most confusing and hardest parts of the Bible to read. Um, just to summarize briefly, Ezra, that the great sin that he's mourning over, Ezra learns that some of the returned exiled men, even, even include, including the priests and those that should have been leaders and, and, and should have been set in the way of how to follow God, they've married women from foreign nations. And this was in violation of God's law. And so he follows the, uh, the advice of another leader, another leader, Um, and and they decide to put out a decree that these men should divorce these foreign women and essentially send them back to their families. Now, John did a great job last week of explaining that and what that's about, so if you missed that, please go back and listen to it or watch it on YouTube. And I don't want to rehash it too much, but there are two parts to this. Firstly, there's the law that was broken. We need to understand that. And secondly, there's Ezra's response. Now, the law that was broken was a command given in Deuteronomy by God to, to not intermarry with other, other nations. Don't, don't be, you guys are different. Don't intermarry with other nations. Now, now, this is not racism. For example, there are lots of good times when, when people did intermarry from other nations. Moses, who was the, the, the champion of Israel, who brought them out of slavery, his wife, Zipporah, was not from Israel. Boaz married Ruth. Ruth, who is, who is one of Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers. Both of these women were from outside of Israel. But in both these cases, Moses and Boaz stayed faithful to God, and then Zipporah and Ruth put their trust in God. This law is not about keeping foreigners out. No. It was about keeping God's people faithful to Him so that they could continue to show the nations around them what God was like. If you're going to marry someone foreign, then make sure that they're coming into the faith community, right? But this has not happened in Ezra chapter 9. He, the, the, he's praying this stuff. He's saying that, that they, they, they've become impure, that they haven't kept the law. The people have not stayed faithful to God. They have not remained separate. So that's the first part. That's the law that we have to understand. Secondly, there's Ezra's response to this. So a few good things, and then one bad thing. I think he he rightly responds by this. He's gone, okay, well, yeah, this is a grievous sin. We we haven't done what we were supposed to do. And we've allowed ourselves to 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 be drawn away from God. And then he seeks God's Word for wisdom in this. He's trying to figure out, Lord, what do you want us to do? So far, so good. But then, sadly, I think, in a good desire for God's people to be faithful to God, he leans too hard on the advice of Shekinah and, and, and has all the men divorce all these women and send them back to their families. So, how does this point to Jesus? How on earth does this point to Jesus? Well, two ways. Firstly, like Ezra, Jesus is committed to our holiness. You see, We don't talk about holiness, but we should, because we need to be holy in order to be in the presence of God. We can't be in the presence of God with our sin, because God's holiness, His otherness, His purity and brilliance are like a consuming fire. And without being made holy, we would be consumed by God, right? I've been watching, I don't know why, but I've been watching sword-making videos on YouTube. So cool. And whenever they have the, the, the first block of iron or steel, they put it in the fire, and all the, the impurities and, and dirt just burn. It burns. This is what it would be like if we, if we were to come in front of God with all our sin. We need to be made holy because He is holy. But unlike Ezra, Jesus knows that, that, that no amount of trial, no matter how drastic the action would be, can make us holy. He, this is a pretty drastic thing. Like a, a, a cruel thing in some ways, send all these women away. That's a complete. Yeah, maybe obeying one law, but it's rejecting all the other laws about being faithful to your wife and about about being welcoming strangers. All these different things that they break the law in an effort to be holiness. He tries so hard, but Jesus knows that no amount of trying can make us holy. There's only one way we can be holy, and that's to take on to take on the nature of Jesus to become like Him. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. Literally means becoming holy. And this is not something we achieve in our own. And so often we try to, don't we? We try and try and try to clean ourselves up, but no matter how good we are, we can never rid ourselves of that sin. Why am I doing this again? I've done this like seven times this week. What is going on? I'm trying so hard. But our being made holy, our sanctification is the gift of God through Jesus in us and the work of the Holy Spirit renewing us. Now, does this mean that we don't try? Does this mean that we don't strive to live holy lives and good lives? No, of course not. But it's precisely because we have received the holiness of God through Jesus that we strive to live in it. Now, imagine if you had a massive debt. If you owned a loan shark, a million pound, right? And you're like, there's no way I can never pay this. No way. He's going to kill me. And then a wealthy businesswoman hears of your situation and she says, I'm going to, I'm going to go to that guy and I'm going to pay that million pound. Your debt is wiped clean. Now after you receive received that gift, would you just go back to living in the same way that got you into the debt in the first place? Just going to spend money I don't have and before you know it, you're back in debt. No, of course, that would be foolish. You would strive to live in a way that doesn't get you back into debt, even though you had, no, you had no, no, no part in getting yourself out of the debt in the first place. Do you see how that works? So, of course, we strive for holiness. And the New Testament is full of commands to do just that. But we still know that the holiness we have comes from God. And like Ezra, Jesus is committed to our holiness, so committed to it that He paid the ultimate price to secure it for us. He's like that sword going into the fire and being burned up, so that we don't have to be. Do you see how that works? And secondly, this episode of divorce points us to Jesus in this way, because we are like the foreign wives, right? We were the ones outside of God's people, and through our marriage to Jesus, we have been brought in to the family of God. And here's the best bit. Jesus is never going to divorce us, right? Right? Jesus is never going to send us away. He is the new and better Ezra, and we are his, and he is ours, and nothing can ever separate us from his love. Once you're in Jesus, you're in him forever. Please hear this and be encouraged this morning. If you are in Jesus, he will never send you away. You are secure in Him and will be secure in Him forever. This is why the, the imagery of marriage and divorce is so evocative. It's, it's why God puts so much emphasis throughout the Bible on, on the permanency of marriage. All you people who have just entered into marriage, brand new. So, we were just talking earlier about how many newly married couples are, some of you on your way to being married. Marriage is permanent because marriage is a picture of the love of Christ for His people, and Christ loves us with an unbreakable bond. We the church are the bride of Christ and, and, and ours is a marriage that cannot be broken and will not ever be broken. And so Ezra points us to Jesus because he is our priest and our mediator he identifies with our sin and he is our perfect groom. he never divorces us and, and, and maybe as you were reading the book of Ezra and you've noticed that it ends with an anticlimax, doesn't it? Yeah, all this coming back from exile, all this, uh, the, the, you know, Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple, and they're like, oh, well, it's not as good as it used to be. And then we have Ezra working so hard on the holiness of the people, the sacrifices, and the, the reading of the law, and even drastic action like divorcing these, all these wives. It's an anti-climax. The people are still away from God. They're still, uh, they're, they're still not holy. And even if we look forward to the time of the coming of Jesus, when Jesus is born in that time, we see that people are still separated from God, it's an anticlimax. And spoiler alert, when we get to the end of Nehemiah, there's going to be another anticlimax there too. And we're meant to feel that anticlimax because all the temples, all the sacrifices, all the prayers, all the doing extreme things to be holy, none of these things can fully reconcile us to God. Only the coming of Jesus can do that. And this is the point of Ezra, to point us to Jesus perfect priest and mediator our perfect sacrifice our only way to holiness the, uh, with his perfect and unbreakable love and so as we get ready to to head back into the world for another week and i don't know all the ins and outs of your life i don't know all the pain that you're carrying all the struggles that you're you're facing even the persecution you might be facing at home and at work but as we head back out into the world this week uh, he, here's how we do that this is incredible we go in complete freedom, right? Freedom because Jesus is our perfect priest and sacrifice, and all our sin has been nailed to the cross. Freedom. It's for, Christ, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And we go also with the sheer sure knowledge that, of Christ's permanent love for us, that we are His and He is ours. And we go with every blessing of God because that's what we've received in Jesus. We go with God's hand on us, His favor on us, on our lives. That's what we get and, because Jesus took the wrath. And we go, not with the punishment of the cross, but with the gift of the Holy Spirit alive and working in us. That's how we go into the world uh, this week and every week. So be encouraged this morning and prepare our hearts then to study Nehemiah uh, next week. Come Holy Spirit, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive, That it is active. Thank you that every page and every story and every word points to Jesus. Um, Lord Jesus, we do just want to pause today and just, like the, like, like the Israelites on the edge of the Red Sea, just see the salvation that you have worked for us. Lord, in our lives that are crazy and busy and stressful and just flat out all the time and never seems that we get a moment. Lord, I just pray that you would teach us and allow us to be still and know that you're God. Father, we just pray that we would see your salvation at work in our lives. Father, I pray for those of us who are struggling with just carrying guilt and feelings of failures. Lord, set us free. A power of your Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Our sin has been nailed to the cross. Set us free this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our perfect groom, that you will never send us away, you'll never divorce us. That you love us with this permanent, unbreakable bond. And for anyone maybe in this room that doesn't know you yet, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Open their hearts, Father. Lord, we're desperate to see you at work in our community and our in our lives. We want to see other people added to your kingdom. We want to see you work in powerful ways, Lord. it starts with just remembering who you are and what you've done for us. So help us be people who just see your salvation, Lord. Uh, We love you and we praise you. As we come to the table now, uh, the table that reminds us of Jesus' death, meet with us again, Lord Jesus. Serve up this meal that is more than just a reminder, it's a proclamation of your death. What it costs you to be our perfect sacrifice. Meet with us, Lord Jesus. Convict us of our sin, yes. And then remind us it's been nailed to the cross. It's been left in the tomb with Jesus, and He walked out and left it all behind. Uh, We love you, Lord. Help us to live in this power. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we are.